We're reading from Job 5, verse 17 to 27. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave and ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear and know it for your good. Reading in God's Word. Amen. So when you hear the phrase, one size fits all, what is it? What comes to your mind? It's a lie. That's what they say, right? So um, I asked uh, one of my medical, uh, medically uh, hooked up friends, this is what I think of when I think of one size fits all. <laughs> all right? Everybody knows what this is, right? This is the walk of shame, right? As you're, as you're going, right? It's... I guess apparently there's a second size. I mean, you're wearing a tent, basically, but but you know, <laughs> don't even imagine what it looks like for if I was really doing this. It's it's not a pretty sight. One size fits all typically doesn't work in fashion, and it never works in theology. And Job is a object lesson in why one size fits all cannot be our theology and how we think about God. Simple answers in a day and age in which we live, in which everyone wants a 20-second soundbite on the truth, can't be gleaned in Scripture. Because God is too big, and he breaks out of our boxes too much to do that. And we're going to begin as the friends of Job, his comforters today, begin to try to give a one-size-fits-all answer to Job. Last week, we looked at how God values gut-level honesty, and that through this book, we're going to see Job trying the best he can to be honest. We looked at how the hedge of protection that had been around Job taken away, and now he's hedged in. He can't even take his own life because he's so miserable. How that hedge of God can itself become an idol for us. And we need to be clear that it's God we're looking at, not his protective hand. And we also looked at how preparing for suffering by telling ourselves the biblical truth is a wise thing to do. So this morning we're introduced to the first of a number of speeches by what who are known as Job's comforters, these three men who have come and sat with Job in all of this profound discomfort that he's in. The phrase, the very phrase Job's comforters is meant... Uh, 
people who are really bad friends and really say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Job says, uh, later in this book, in Job 16, verse 2, he says, you are miserable comforters, all of you. <laughs> Job doesn't mince words with God or with his friends. In, uh, in chapter 42, God says that what you have said about me to these friends, says, I'm angry with you because what you've spoken about me is not true and is not right. So, I had Sarah read this morning verses that the first of the three friends we hear from, Eliphaz, speaks, because when I read things like that, I think I could say that. If, if you listened to what she was saying, many of the things that she read, I, I thought, well, that's really true. That's really good. Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. Anything wrong with that? I don't, I don't think so. On and on, he'll deliverance. And so Job is one of those books that to cherry pick a few verses, we have to look at the bigger context because the problem again is this one size fits all approach. So when they come, they start well because they come, it says at the end of chapter two, and they sit with Job for seven days in silence and they just come alongside of him. And they sit and they mourn with him without saying a word. We're going to come back to that in a minute because I think that posture itself was a pretty good start. But then they began to speak and it went downhill from there. And it says that they brought with them some presuppositions about who God was, that they had already figured out what the problem was and they knew what the answer was. So just to sort of summate what the book of Job, and we've, we've started talking about this in the first couple of weeks, Job's suffering must be a punishment for sin. That's their first presupposition. Job's suffering must be a punishment for sin because presuppos- presupposition, number two, is that God never causes innocent people to suffer. You see these listed again and again and again. I'll, let's pick up uh, just a couple of them. Uh, verse chapter 4, at the beginning of Eliphaz's first speech, uh, I'll just read you a couple of things that capsulize this. Number 17, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Look at verse 7. Remember, who was it that was innocent who ever perished? Were the upright ever cut off? So it's not possible these guys come to the, to the story saying it is not possible for bad things to happen to good people in this extreme way that Job is suffering. It must be, they think, a result of something he's done to bring God's wrath upon him. Consequently, it's never going to be possible for God to find a way to justify the wicked because this is the thing. Good things happen to good people Bad things happen to bad people, right? Just, again, in our human minds, that works pretty well for me. However, from the beginning, Job is shown to be a man not perfect, but righteous. What's the difference? Perfect means you make no mistakes. Perfect, there's not a flaw within you. And Job is going to go too far in protesting his innocence that he almost thinks of himself, we're going to see later, with a little too much 
perfection in his heart toward himself, but he is a righteous man. That is, he is doing his best and walking in the ways of the Lord to the best of his ability. That's how he's shown. And yet, he suffers these tremendous tragedies. So, let's look at what these presuppositions we all bring these kind of things to the table. If you think we walk into God without any kind of thought as to who he is, you're wrong. Every one of us is a theologian. That is, we think things about God. Do you think God's basically good? Basically kind of a, a hard nose. Would you see him as one who actively communicates, or is he kind of out there waiting for you to get to him? How does he feel about you when you sin? Is he angry with you? Is he forgiving? Is he, is he indulgent? Is he papa, grandpapa? We bring presuppositions in our mind about the God that we think he is, and what the Bible would tell us is we need to see him as the God who he is. And he's more mysterious and bursts out of our boxes. And so... As we look at these friends, I want to tell you two things. Not everything they say is wrong. As we just read, and there are verses after verses that you and I could sit and affirm the words they say. But not everything they say is right. And the context in which they speak is completely wrong. Because God says at the end, you have not spoken truthfully about what? About me, the Lord says. Individual things they say about circumstances, about life, you could affirm and I could affirm, but they don't know or fear God. What we see is that they don't hold God in that awesome respect, and Job does. And this is the difference at the end we're going to see between them. So, as we're going to look, we're not, you know, Job is uh, going to be many, many chapters on these themes, and we're going to move relatively rapidly through much of it because they repeat many of these themes over and over again. But I want to just talk to us a minute about comfort and about what we do, because I don't know about you, but I know people who are in circumstances and in situations, and I've been in situations. When I was at my lowest point of my life, a lot of people said things to me that I know they thought were helpful. Have you ever had that happen? And, you know, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I know they mean well. I now do, as part of my uh, calling, I do funerals. And there's nothing like a good funeral to bring out weird things people want to say to be comforting, right? I mean, I've, I've, I've heard a lot. I probably haven't heard it all, but I've heard a lot. I've heard a lot of the, God needed an angel in heaven. I'm like, what? Not only is that bad theology, he doesn't need angels in heaven. There's just everything wrong. But I've heard people, I think, in trying to be comforting, say things that aren't. So looking at Job's friends, looking at some of the things, let me just offer you a couple of things um, as we try to not be Job's comforters, but, but try to look at maybe gleaning from this. This isn't necessarily from the book of Job, but I was really struck as I was reading. I've read now many times the first, especially the first 20 chapters or so, and I really felt like I wanted to just offer a few things here, practical things on this comforting. Number one, 
Romans, Paul says in the book of Romans and how we live as Christians, he says very, very simply, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. Period. He doesn't say mourn with those who mourn and subtly remind them or try to explain their problems or remind them of how they got themselves into this mess. Or There's just a sense of when we sit with people and we rejoice in their joy and we simply mourn with them, there is a quality, a Christ-like coming alongside Emmanuel, God with us quality that we don't have to have the answers. And there is something healing that word, Greek word therapeutic, about the presence of someone who's just sitting with you. One verse later, interestingly enough, Paul says, please don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Mourn with people who mourn and don't think that you're the answer man. Secondly, please be willing to say, I don't know, when people ask you questions that you don't know. I know we feel compelled to come up with good answers, but if you don't know, just say it. I've been reading a, a book, a commentary from a hundred or so years ago by a guy named William Henry Green called Conflict and Triumph, The Argument of the Book of Job Unfolded. And I was really struck by this statement he made in talking about these comforters. He says, they concluded, they should have concluded that they were not called of God to be his champions in this matter, they should have owned the mystery and confessed their ignorance. And then in silence waited patiently till the Lord himself disclosed the impregnable basis or unfathomable basis on which he chose to have his cause rested. Listen to that for a minute. They should have owned the mystery. It's mysterious. That's what a mystery is. I don't understand it fully. Confess their ignorance. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. And then waited patiently till the Lord revealed himself. And that can take time. Guys, I can tell you there are some people with whom I'm waiting. I've waited for decades so far to unravel the mystery of why things have happened, Job-like. Maybe you have too. In some cases, God has revealed himself in incredible ways, in ways we never could have foreseen. But sitting and waiting patiently is not till the end of the day. It's till the Lord shows up to reveal himself. Number three, third thing, just in terms of being a comforter that I think would be a comforter first, being present in and of itself, being willing to say, I don't know. Page three, biblical principles, while not to be disregarded, can't be given without the leading of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean by that. It's not that we don't have any idea why God operates. We do. God gives us some clear principles in his word as to the general way he operates. But when we take a passage like in the third chapter, I mean the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, a, blind, a man born blind, the Pharisees had exactly the same comforter type questions. Who was it that sinned that made this man blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? See, the two, the, there were two, two ways to go, right? 
somebody sinned, and there's blindness, right? So, so the only question on the table for them is who sinned? This guy or his parents? Which one, God? And what, what does Jesus answer? He says, you, you don't get it. Neither, it's neither of those. I don't know how righteous the blind man was, but he said this was for God's glory. Now that unleashes some terrifying questions. You're trying to tell me this guy was blind for however long in his life? So for this moment, Jesus Christ, how fair is that? What kind of life did this guy live in this day? You could ask all those kind of questions, and it, but in the moment, I can tell you that I will bet you, uh, we'll, I'll talk to the blind man in heaven, but I will bet you, that for the moment to have Jesus Christ touch him and heal him and to have his first sight be that of God in the flesh must have been incredible. And then he goes on and astounds the Pharisees with the truth of an experience that overwhelms their theology. Because he says, I don't know much about much. I can't argue your theology. What I know is this, right? I used to be blind, but now I see. When you become touched with an experiential touch of Jesus, all this wrangling over theological language becomes so much stuff. It's not that it's unimportant, but it isn't important like the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. Number four. Our goal, I think, in comforting is to bring the God of all comfort into the situation. And that is simply to point them to one who has already mourned and suffered with us and to remind the one who is suffering that God has not abandoned them and not forsaken them, though we understand why they feel that way. Humanly, guys, I can understand why some people may feel, and you may feel, God's abandoned you. Let me remind you of what the truth of Scripture teaches. He has not. He has never abandoned you or forsaken you, though his presence is sometimes difficult to see or feel or find. But the truth of the scripture is not impeded by our experience. I know that's hard in an experiential world where everything that's true is what we hear, see, touch, taste, and feel, but it isn't. There is something beyond that. And faith is the substance of things we've hoped for. It is the reality of what you cannot see. And it is mysterious, but it is real. I want to close by just looking at Job's response. Because in the way this is set up, one of the comforters gives a speech. And the writer uses the comforter as a mouthpiece for what he's trying to get us as the readers to see. And he uses these words that have been recorded to remind us that there's not a one-size-fits-all theology. And each of the three comforters takes sort of a different tack on the same idea. And then Job responds to each one. And there's, it's a cycle. It's three. It's a, a technique that they would use where you have comforter number one speaks, then Job responds. Two speaks, Job responds. Three speaks, Job responds. And we have one, two, three again, and then one, two. And then you think the third one's coming, and boom, he's not there. And it's God speaking. And it's, there's a, anyway, we'll get to that. But it's all that to say is that now we have Job's first response after Eliphaz has given a very eloquent, in some ways, things I would have would say or would have said to people who were suffering because there isn't a perfect man. All of us in some ways deserve 
not the good and the great, but, but our sin does make us vulnerable to so much suffering. Job's response, first he talks about the transience of life, and he just would rather die. It's one of the themes of Job just feels like his life isn't worth much anymore. And it's not even depression so much as it is simply despair. And if any of you have been at a point of despair, there is a sense in which what, what is life? And Job, again, this gut-level honesty, in, in chapter 6 and 7, he, he addresses his friend, tries to answer back and say, look, what you don't understand is I, I'm the real deal. I'm, I'm innocent of these charges. I, I haven't sinned greatly. And the guy says, no, no, who sinned? You or your parents. So it's basically the same idea. You have to have sinned. Something, you're, you're faking it. No, I'm not faking it. Well, see, I can tell by the way you're saying you're faking it, you're really faking it. Because if you weren't faking it, you'd say, no, I'm not faking it. Well, see, everybody would deny, right? It's, it's that cyclical argument. Then Job turns, and I want to pick up ending with this, Job turns and he addresses God himself. After he addresses his friend, his comforter, starting in verse 12, through the end of that chapter 7, the end of Job's first talk, he addresses God. And what's very interesting about this is basically, uh, I'll I'll cut through a little bit of the poetry because it can be a little hard to glean. We'll get to the key verses here. But essentially he says, God, you're a hover parent. If you want to get it, that's essentially what he says. God, you're, you're, you're too close. Now, throughout much of this, we have God being accused of being way too far away, because if he were close, he would have saved Job from all this suffering. So God, in the earlier on, we say, God, you're way too far away. Where are you, God? Where are you? It's a theme of our thing. Where are you, God? You're far away. And Job actually nails the real problem. God, why are you so close? Listen to what he says. Let's uh, pick up in verse um, 17. What is man that you make so much of him? that you set your heart on him, that you visit him every morning and test him every moment. I love this next verse. How long will you not look away from me? This is the best line. You don't leave me alone until I swallow my spit. In other words, God's so present, it's like, all right, I'll swallow it, God. I'm right. That verse 17, what is man that you make so much of him? It's exactly the same phrasing as a verse we love from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 4. And you know, we, this is one of these verses that goes on the uh, mugs and, uh, you know, it's on our walls and it's the first, the only, it's the, uh, the Vatican put it up on the moon when they wanted to send 73 countries sent a disc to the moon and buried it, so whoever's going to find that in whatever time gets to know what we're thinking, and the Vatican sends this verse. What is man, Psalm 8, the whole psalm, but what is man, verse 4 of Psalm 8, that you're mindful of him? If you look at the phrasing in the Hebrew, it's virtually identical. One of the verbs has changed, but it's the same lingo and the same thought. In this, it's done in the context of when I consider the grandeur of the heavens, the stars. Lord, I'm, I'm so small and you're so big, How, and, you, and yet you've made us a little lower than the angels. I mean, it is great. 
And Job uses the same language in chapter se- in verse 17 of chapter 7, and he says, What's man that you make such a big deal over us? And you're testing me every morning. And you're in my face all the time. It's a great line, one of my favorite musicals, Fiddler on the Roof. Tevye, the, the Jewish milkman, main character, says, God, I know we Jews are your chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else once in a while? <laughs> the man who's suffering under poverty and strain. And, and Job says, look, God, I know you're, you're there but you're so close. And I can't see the presence of the loving Father. I see the presence of one who's pushing me and testing me to the end of my rope. And this is where we have the advantage over Job. Because he didn't yet know what we know. That a righteous, innocent person can suffer the most heinous of all crimes against him. And it's not because he sinned, but because he loved. And that as we see the man Jesus Christ who is completely and utterly innocent, suffering on behalf of those who aren't truly innocent. We can blow that theology out of the water and say, Lord, sometimes I may suffer for my sin, but you never did. You only suffered for my sin, never for your own. And what it does is it gives us the possibility that if a really, really righteous person can suffer terrible things, then maybe, just maybe, a really wicked person doesn't have to have the bad things happen to them that they deserve. Because remember that theology of retribution theology, good people, good things, bad people, bad things. And what the Bible teaches is none of us are good enough and that we all deserve things we couldn't even, we can't contemplate how devastating it is what we deserve. But because a completely innocent person suffered on your behalf, you and I, the wicked, don't have to bear that which is bad. We get what we don't deserve. Remember I told you at the beginning, the gospel is hidden in Job probably more than any other book of of the Old Testament. And you'd think, how is that? Because it points to this truth. So we have cause for rejoicing even as we're good comforters to those who suffer, no one suffered like Jesus did. And it wasn't because he deserved it, but because you deserved it and I deserved it. But it's not automatic. That transference isn't automatic. You have to ask in faith. You have to believe in the truth of that. So don't fool yourself into thinking, well, that's great, and I can live the way I want to. The truth is you can be right with God but it takes believing that what I've just said is absolutely true. And not just in an intellectual way, but in a way that makes you commit your life and heart to him because faith is that assurance of things you've hoped for. Maybe you think, I wish that were true, Tim, but I just can't believe it. 
believe it and it becomes true for you. That's the wonderful thing about faith. It opens the door to the possibility of this truth. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the lessons you hide, even in terrible suffering, Lord. That is, Lord, as we look at what was said and not said in the book of Job, we look at things that could have been done differently. Father, we see that you were present all along, but hidden in mysterious ways. Lord, so close to Job, hovering over him, but Lord, you always do things out of love, even your testing. And while Job didn't think he could bear any more, he did, and we're going to see the redemption that comes because of the promise. So Lord, I pray for each of us, I pray for those in particular who are in the fight right now, in the struggle, at various levels, experiencing the pain of loss, experiencing pain from physical distress, Lord, fighting off cancers and diseases and bacteria and viruses that that plague our world. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of that, you are the God who is close. Sometimes we feel small, but Lord, you have put us in a position to reflect you to this world, writing your spirit inside of us. So, Father, we ask you to encourage us as we parent our children, as we go to work, as we live our lives as lights in this world. Encourage us, O Lord, that we, as we deal with you honestly, as we deal with others with integrity, that we can, O Lord, walk through even the difficulties of life with the fragrance of Christ. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.